The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention leadership recently announced the agency will undergo an overhaul to address the causes of repeated missteps during the pandemic. For how that might actually look, Federal News Network's Eric White spoke to Julie Swan, a professor of industrial and systems engineering at NC State. She's done much research in this area, including on behalf of CDC itself. There is at this point still not full details on exactly what's going to happen. The CDC director has stated that a plan uh, will be submitted. There are some things that we know. We know that the reporting structure is going to change for the laboratory group at CDC, and now that will be reporting directly to the the director's office. There are some changes coming in the communications side of the CDC. There are also some other changes that are not necessarily the structure so much as the incentives and permissions, such as how data is released to the public and how papers or in this case, prepents are released to the public. And I imagine, you know, this is all from looking within after the COVID-19 response that is still ongoing. So we got to just <laughs> lay that out there. Um, but what during the pandemic do you think set this kind of restructuring up? Um, what were some things that you and your colleagues saw that you said, nah, you know, maybe there could be a little bit more updating there? Well, there are a number of things that, that people have identified as being problematic, One uh, problem was the initial lab tests for coronavirus and the way that that was rolled out, Uh, the exclusive uh, lab tests from the federal government. It was difficult to use and there were some errors. So that may be one reason why the laboratory structure is changing a little bit. One of the other big complaints about the CDC during the pandemic has related to communication, communication about what to do, how long to isolate, um, how to think about different aspects of prevention and mask usage and those kinds of things that uh, can be seen partly in the changing of how communications will be done. Another challenge has certainly been data and obtaining uh, data uh, required reporting from the states in several cases, which does not happen in all diseases and in all cases until certain conditions have been met, um, and then making that data available to the public. And that can be addressed at least partly with some of the changes that are coming with respect to data and publications. One of the other changes is that the CDC is creating an equity office. This can help them make sure that the workforce is representative of the U.S. population is and is communicating information appropriately to different groups. With having this focus on equity really central uh, in that director's role, it can also help make sure that we're addressing equity and disparities in access and outcomes across public health emergencies, as well as other areas of the CDC. Yeah, so we can kind of just go through all of those briefly. When it comes to public health, what are the key aspects of good, clear communication uh, that you're trying to release to the public when you are looked at as the wise old man when it comes to uh, infectious diseases? One of the real challenges during a public health emergency is that you don't have the full information at the beginning of the event. And really, even what the scientists know may be changing over time as there's more information about the disease or even as a disease changes itself. So certainly we want communication to be clear and actionable. It can also be helpful to communicate the uncertainty, uh, the things that 
you're, you're sure about, the things that you're not sure about, and sometimes even the reasons for doing something. So the communication around masks might fall into that a little bit, given some of the different things that have happened over time. In some cases, the communication can also lay out whether that particular advice or guidance is driven primarily by the science or whether it's also driven by the uh, cascading effects of particular actions or behaviors within communities. Yeah, and mistakes and wrong choices, I guess, or wrong advice just gets amplified, especially in today's environment. And we saw definitely a lot of that. Uh, What can you say about maybe how this improved communication effort might step back some of those uh, mistaken ideas that were first thrown out in the beginning of the pandemic and, you know, lost CDC some credibility? Well, there's a lot that we still don't know about exactly how the CDC will restructure and improve communication. What is clear during this public health emergency is that uh, communication from government agencies and on important topics like public health has been hit with a lot of misinformation and disinformation. Things have been spreading through social media uh, that are, are not true or are, have a kernel of truth, but have other things that are not true. This represents a huge challenge for our governmental agencies. I think that restructuring communication is one part of this, but I think that we're going to have to to work on this issue for many years to come and really figure out the best ways to deal with the miscommunication and, and disinformation and misinformation that can occur during social media and and ways that people are engaging in media. Yeah, and one way to do that would be to showcase some of the facts and data that you have to back up some of those plans. Uh, what can you tell me about data access and what where the CDC could improve in making sure that the state and local government health agencies also have access to the important data? It may be surprising to people to know that the CDC does not necessarily receive data from the states. Even in this recent monkeypox outbreak, initially there was no requirement that the states had to report that information to the CDC. That did occur after the public health emergency was declared, but making sure that the CDC can get the full information that we need for protecting our society is one important piece of that data. And so the CDC is working with HHS to to request that kind of authority uh, under various kinds of conditions. The second piece is sharing of data. And one of the things that happened during this pandemic is that we saw a number of media organizations that were able to pull together data and share things in a public way that is unlike things that we have seen before. And, you know, really with the, the new data sources that are available, this becomes more and more possible over time. So the CDC, along with other federal agencies, certainly needs to look at modernizing data and thinking about the the wide set of uh, data sources that might be available to fully inform uh, what is presented to the public, as well as how this data is stratified. 
One of the other missteps that we saw during the pandemic is that initially uh, race ethnicity was voluntary reporting by states, for example. And when data started being reported about vaccine administration, we saw that there were initial disparities in who was uh, receiving or, or taking vaccine from the states that were reporting that. Having that information then allows us to know how we are doing and how we need to address it. That stratification by race, ethnicity, by age distribution, by geography from state down to county can help both public health organizations, their partners, and even the community to make sure that we are protecting society to the extent possible. Ideally, uh, what do you and you know your colleagues think that the CDC can do to improve its uh, mission and how that it goes about ensuring that people have the information they need and all the right people have the right data and information? Our public health system is really complex. We have a lot of decentralized decision makers from different federal agencies to state agencies, local agencies, hospital providers, and, and other kinds of partners throughout the space. So, you know, it's a really complex system. I think restructuring is important, focusing on the things that are most impactful and thinking about ways to incentivize the participants in this decentralized system in a way that aligns the entire organization and the entire public health system. So data is one example. Um, There is an emphasis on publishing with papers, and that's really important to make sure that we're getting CDC-reviewed material that's out there, but being able to get that out faster as pre-parents or even have the data released as soon as it, it, it is accurate can be helpful in protecting the public. So making sure that not only the structure of the organization, as well as the communication and even the incentives, because we all know that, that people behave according to what they're measured. Julie Swan is professor of engineering at NC State and she specializes in health and humanitarian research. She spoke with Federal News Network's Eric White. Find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive and subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then 
sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation. But it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of 
coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But 
I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So, so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield. And this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.